Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Um, my guest today is George Howard, co-founder of Max Music Exchange. I apologize about the acronym. Uh, can you let users know or listeners know the full acronym name? Sure. Happy to be here. My name is George Howard. I'm the co-founder and head of music, and the company is called Music Audience Exchange. And yep, we go by the abbreviation MAX, M-A-X. Okay. Thanks, George. So what, what does MAX do? Tell me what you guys do in the music industry. Yeah, well, we're, 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 uh, we're fixing the music industry, right? Which is, which is a horribly broken entity right now, um, institution right now. You know, let, let me give you just a little bit of sort of background on, on sort of the the values of, of why we're doing what we're doing, because I think the, the why of what we're doing is really important. And, and, and our company is sort of a byproduct of that. You know, it, 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 my, my career in music has been, you know, 25 years now, going all the way back to uh, running the first CD only label. So back when, uh, when people thought CDs were going to save the music business, I ran a company called Ryko Disc. And it was, it was innovative for its time. It turned out that CDs were, were, as the major labels thought, a fad. It just happened that they were a 30-year fad. After that, I, uh, I co-founded a company called TuneCore, which became the world's in- largest independent distribution company, um, helping artists get their music up onto iTunes and other streaming services. And the reason I mention those things, and you know, at, at my core, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I'm a guitar player. I've made records, produced records, everything. You know, huh. I probably born a guitar player. Probably die one. Everything in between is really, really, you know, uh, just just noise. But um, but but what I mentioned those companies and sort of a little bit on my background because you know I, I've been put on this this planet to help artists create sustainable careers in their own terms on their own terms right that that's what I get up out of bed every day to do and that that's led to starting companies getting a law degree teaching all sorts of things all for that same gesture um, and you know I'm unbelievably fortunate to have. Um, a co-founder, Nathan Hanks, who is also the CEO of the company, and you know he's not on the phone, so I can embarrass or on, the, on this interview, so I can embarrass him a little bit. But you know, the best sort of CEO I've ever been exposed to, and I've been exposed to a lot of them. Um, and and he has a similar vision, a similar sort of artistic bent, a similar artistic values, but we're complementary because Nathan has been, uh, you know, had an unbelievably successful career. Uh, running and taking comp- uh, taking public company companies, including Reach Local, and and his his bent too is really this idea of you know why why do we ne- need to have 
unnecessary intermediaries? Why do we have inefficiencies? And so we, Nathan and I bonded and met over our sort of shared frustration around the fact that unless an artist is signed to a major label, and this is 100% true, signed to a major label, um, they are not going to be able to get uh, big-time radio play. Just not going to happen, right? So you can have all the money in the world. You could have a rich uncle or venture capitalist on your side or whatever, but you're not ever going to get your music played on sort of big-time commercial radio. And as much as we're in a streaming world and everything else, big-time commercial radio has, has more sort of impact than you, you think. And this frustrated Nate and me, you know, deeply um, because it's 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 sort of the last intermediated moment. And this does relate to the topic of this 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 podcast, to be quite honest. But uh, but so we sort of set out as a way to sort of solve for that problem. And what we arrived with is that there are two fundamental problems. One is this sort of intractable wall between artists and getting their music on on radio. And the other is the unstructured data and lack of efficiencies around connecting. Um, music with brands in a really integrated way, right? We've all heard music in, in millions of commercials, et cetera. I was fortunate enough a million years ago to do a campaign with, with an artist named Nick Drake and Volkswagen, and it stayed with me in terms of hitting that sweet spot between value alignment of the artist, the fans, and the brand. That's super rare. Um, until Max came along, that's been done in a really ad hoc way. Someone at a brand or an agency is friends with some artist, and they kind of pipe it in to the campaign, and nobody really knows if it worked or didn't. And that that drives Nathan and me crazy. And when you combine the two gestures, you you actually solve for both problems. So the product for Music Audience Exchange is is using data, using tons of sort of psychographic elements and some human intervention to actually create campaigns for brands. That, that provide real ROI for the artist first and foremost, because that's who we're driven by, the brands and the, and the, and the artist fans, as well as the brand's customers. Um, and in the process of doing that, a byproduct of that is radio, right? Because we then go in and we put campaigns out onto radio through ads. We, we you know, mm-hmm. comply with all, all regulations. And then what happens is magic. You start getting calls from people who hear these artists. And we're, we're talking about artists that have yet to achieve sort of superstardom. Um, they have sort of regional right. success. And the, the people call in, and then the program director's hands are forced. And at that point, they, mm-hmm. they add them to regular rotation. You know, it may sound trivial to you. It's like a miracle, right? So those are the values that sort of drove the company's inception. And, and I give Nate all the credit. Um, you know, we have built something that is working across all of those all of those segments that's satisfying the brands, the artists, the fans, and sort of disintermediating this radio stuff. All right, so I got I got some questions here. Is radio still the dominant way that people hear their music, or is it Pandora or Spotify? Or you know, it seems like um, listening has fragmented into a bunch of channels. Which which ones are the dominant ones now? Which ones are ascending? Which ones are crumbling? In your opinion, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, radio is more important than you think, but but obviously, we're working with Spotify, Pandora, all the DSPs too, right? I mean, you know, we're not idiots, and and um, it's it's in my opinion, you know, it's Amazon's game to lose, right? Amazon, Amazon probably wins the music space if they don't screw it up. Um, you know, SoundCloud, you've seen today what's happening there. Um, you know, Pandora, wonderful product, but certainly not without their sort of challenges. Most of the standalone streaming services have, have challenges. The, the ones that are tethered to another entity, whether it's Amazon, Google, or Apple, 
you know, music has a different relationship for them. Our, our, our job and our priority and our sort of fiduciary duty is to the artists and wherever fans are discovering music and wherever brands feel they need to reach those audiences. So we're, we're agnostic in terms of, of where we do our campaigns so long as um, it results in the biggest and best ROI for the artists and the brands. But I didn't mean to apply. We were just doing traditional terrestrial radio. We're not. What about um, podcasts? Is the podcast universe big enough where, you know, musicians could do an intro or outro or like a snippet of a song and, you know, and, and get any traction there? Just an idea. Sure. I mean, you, you, yeah, you bring up, it's, yeah, it's cool. You bring up um, an interesting challenge that, that I think does relate to and probably be of interest to your listeners. But, um, you know, podcasts are a different set of rights for music because podcasts are downloadable. So music mm-hmm. in a podcast from a rights perspective, is a very different uh, proposition than music being streamed or played on radio. The licensing is just huh. vastly more complicated. And so a lot of podcasters have trouble because, you know, they've taken something that they've done over the air, all good intention, and then they've made it downloadable as a podcast, and the rights rights change, and they are prima facie infringing. I've actually done a lot of work with National hmm. Public Radio I actually helped them build out a blockchain product to sort of solve for this because, of course, of course, we should be able to do this with podcasts. But institutionally, music rights are so fractured um, and so complicated and, and with so much intervention, government and otherwise, it makes it really hard. Blockchain, you know, my thesis on blockchain and music is we need a decentralized, interoperable data layer, ledger, whatever, right, that, that uh, has machine-readable rules on it. And if you did that, then you could assign rules related to how your music is used, and, and that could include podcasts. Right now, as you know, the databases for music and rights are, are, are just fractured and fragmented across you know, countless different sort of industries and verticals, many of whom believe, or uh, I'm sorry, institutions and sort of businesses, many of whom believe that their worth, their sort of existential worth, is reliant upon keeping their data closed and walled off. And that's, you know, now we're an innovator still in the lane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, how do you think blockchain is going to affect the music industry? Will, you know, it, it will allow for, I'm sure, artists to directly sell to fans. You know, like Imogen Heap, I guess, uh, did this, and several artists are trying it. But what about existing music? Let's say the Beatles. You know, what would happen yeah. to them? They're in so many places. Would, would blockchain help them, hurt them? Would they just avoid it? What does it look like if... Their music, for instance, went on there. Yeah, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful question. So, um, you know, back to Imogen, I chronicled the whole Mycelia project, and Imogen's a hero and a thought leader. But um, you know, we, we she built that out, and I, I sort of helped, sort of, I was her uh, Samuel Johnson or whatever, chronicling uh, the process mm-hmm. in my Forbes columns, um, and and that really did provide sort of a line of sight that a lot of people have been iterating on, myself included, and a lot of interesting companies in the space, essentially saying what I said a moment ago. If rights holders put their works on a decentralized ledger with machine-readable rules and then make that searchable in you know, smart contracts, we should be able to open up new licensing structures in a more free market way, get music-adjacent industries to start pulling in music. I mean, that's the dream. But you hit the nail on the head, and you're one of the few people that did. The, the artists who can do that, the images of the world, um, the independent, our independent artists, artists who have not yet assigned their rights to a label, to a publisher, to a performance rights society like ASCAP or BMI, artists who have done that 
frequently do not have the ability to avail themselves of the technology that, that you referenced and I just described um, unless and until they're, they're the people that have control of their rights uh, you know, give them the permission to do so. And as I said before, those rights holders aren't going to do that, right? They, they see it as, as an action against their interests. Um, and this is really... Well, why, why, do they, why do they see it that way? I, I would think that, you know, if I held the rights to, let's say, again, the Beatles, oh, I can monetize it potentially so many more ways now, you know? Well, I mean, first off, I've stolen this line from somebody else, and I use it all the time, but the music industry um, adapts to new technology just slower than the Amish, right? I mean, historically, music institutions have fought, resisted, tried to sue into oblivion any type of new technology going all the way back to piano rolls and music boxes and all the way through cassettes, vinyl, CDs, and obviously, you know, uh, peer-to-peer sharing uh, that, that they perceive as, a, as or perceive as a threat to their current modes of business. So if you are a label, if you are a publisher, and right now, somebody has to come to you, and you get to set the terms for the licenses, and you get to take a percentage of any deal, sometimes the lion's share of the percentage that you strike. And then the alternative is, oh, no, you artists can just go on ahead, put this onto a decentralized ledger with machine-readable uh, rules and smart contracts. Their, their equation then results in, well, what do you need us for? And they're probably right, right? But that doesn't mean that they can't innovate and find other values. But, but, I mean, the fact that you're coming at this is not a sort of domain expert in music, of course it doesn't make any sense to you. But I'm just telling you what the, what the practice is and what the resistance is. And to, to finish the thought on, on why they haven't done it and, and, and how it relates to blockchain adoption, unless and until some of these big artists either get their rights back, um, and, and I'll talk about that in a second, or some label or publisher or rights holder pulls their head out of their behind and goes, look, we, we actually have a duty and we should be finding ways to utilize this new technology to open up new and heretofore unimagined ways to get licenses and adopted. We're going to have real network effects with any type of blockchain-based music licensing product. We just will. There just won't be enough you know, content of interest to sort of drive a two-sided market. One legal way to potentially get around this, and the labels are aware of this and they don't like it, publishers too, is that as part of the 1976 copyright revision, um, there was a clause that came in that said any works after 1978 can will revert back to the rights holders within a 35-year time period. So that started happening in 2013, but the labels are fighting this like crazy, because and publishers too, because what it means is that right. if you're a songwriter, if you're a performer, you can go to the label in a very little narrow window and say, hey, give me my rights back, and then those parties could you know, avail themselves of blockchain tech or any other new technology. But unless and until that type of stuff starts to happen, and I, I do fear uh, issues or, you know, related to network effect in terms of adoption. Okay. And, um, I didn't understand it again, because I'm an outsider, but what makes music successfully lift a brand, integrate with a brand, and then help the music itself as well become more widespread and help the artist? How do you form these... Um, you know, these beneficial uh, interactions between the two. So is the, quest, is the question, what is the process or what is, or, or what is the outcome? Like, or is, is it like, why does it work or how does it work? Yeah, you know, why and how? And maybe you can give like a specific, specific example because I just don't understand, you know, I know the brands and music can help a brand, brand can help music, but what are some specific examples of it being done right 
and both, you know, the rising tide lifting both boats. Yeah, so so what I'd like to do here is rather than me just sort of iterate, we've got any number of case studies. And so the representative from Blast PR can send over specific case studies that, that, that you can sort of integrate onto the site that list the, the just at this point, count, not countless, many, many projects that sort of show this rather than me just sort of, uh, you know, ad hoc well, rambling you, about specific projects. But I can tell you, you why. About, well, I, I want to hear that, but can, can you just tell me one, maybe your favorite one or one that was an unexpected, really great result? Just one. Bud Light is trying to trying to reach Hispanics in the sort of 21 to 34 year old area, right? And and okay. um, and Phoenix, right? So it's very it's a very sort of regional campaign. Um, and uh, we come up with this this artist using our tool. Where and again, we, what I what I love so much about the way that we've done this is that that it's it's scalable because historically. The, the you know these types of programs are not scalable, and by that I mean you're a brand. You want to find some band, you got to go out and license it. And I can walk you through the technology that does that, and that's more sort of the how. But but so through right. using that tool, this this band populate where this band comes up, and they're called Los Cuates de Sinaloa, right? And I can you know, see you on my accent, terrible C U A T E S D E, and then S I N A L O A, right? And it's a good example because it's like they're not exactly a, a uh, household brand, right? But they're a band that, that, that we surfaced. We didn't know of them. The brand didn't know about them. Um, and what happens is we connect with them. They go out. We do this engagement with them. And and it works, right? I mean, now the next thing you know, you've got the, the brand saying, okay, we've got 12% lift in sales. Um, and then what's important and dear to my heart, this band, this artist, right, starts getting all of this other awareness in a way that's very organic, doesn't piss off their fans, doesn't, you know, their existing fans, and gets them new fans. Again, I go back to my little thesis for, for living, and it's helping those artists. They can then take that awareness that's been built um, and and grow, right? So no no additional, yeah. um, no additional sort of like, there can be negative byproduct. I and mean, we've all seen campaigns where, you know, some band, I mean, we used to call this selling out before the music business sort of got so, Horrible, right, that it, yeah. you know. So that you know that's that's one example, but there's just literally hundreds of them. Okay, well that's great. So, yeah, you're right. A, a band like that, which I don't think is too big to be lifted by Bud Light, it's it's really cool. It's um, a small band lifts a huge brand, and the huge brand, I'm sure, elevates that band tremendously. So it's a really great uh, symbiotic relationship. That's really cool. Exactly, which is so hard, right? I mean, that's the right word. But but the key is is that the like the bands have to have an emotional connection to the brand in some way, an organic one. I mean, I'm I'm so proud of both the technology and the team where these brands, I'm sorry, these artists are very excited to go out and do the things on the brand's behalf because they actually like the product, right? They actually use the product themselves, and so structuring that makes it a much more sort of organic thing. And then the brand is happy. And then the brand, you know, puts more resources in. And you, as you say, you get this symbiotic thing. And most importantly, the fans aren't like, oh man, you just sort of sell it. It's like, no, actually we, we do like this, you know? And it's very integrated. So it's, it's you know, this idea that the, the artists are getting new fans online, you know, offline throughout throughout the whole, the whole sort of integrated sort of value cycle. Yeah, that's great. What, what do you think is going to happen with the music industry? It seems like it's being demonetized and musicians have to yeah, go on tour to make money or sell merchandise. 
Yeah. Now that it's it's nice, there's a new portal, you know, with with brand interaction. That's great. That'll help some some bands. But what's your overall view of the industry? Where is it going? So I I I believe that unless unless that sort of product solution blockchain based and you know blockchain's a word that gets thrown all all around too much, but some decentralized you know ledger with the characteristics that are often attributed to blockchain blockchain machine readable rules etc. Um, unless that happens, we're going to reach a point within probably three to five years where anybody who wants to pay for a music subscription will be paying, and anyone who's not never will, right? You have to sort of reach a point where like, oh, I'll just get it on YouTube or I'll get it on I'll pirate it, whatever. And so, and, and we will, you know, there'll be consolidation. And so the players like Deezer and Tidal and maybe Spotify, these standalone players will either have to merge or get uh, acquired and will be left with, you know, Apple, Amazon, Google using music as a pure loss leader to sell Amazon Prime or whatever and effectively driving the price of music to zero, right? And um, I think that, you know, Max will be fine, right? We've got lots of value propositions. And as you said, like the use of music and in, in, uh, in, 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 in ads, et cetera, is, is, will continue and probably be a more robust industry as we go forward. Uh, but the, the, the hope, my hope, and what I'm spending a lot of time working on is if we are able to build that technology and implementation thereof, where, where people who are not currently using music because of challenges related to licensing and everything else, and I mean from startups to music-adjacent companies, you know, film, TV, whatever, to music orthogonal companies, businesses that never thought about music, whether that's IoT or health or whatever, can actually begin building products and getting music into their ecosystem and music becomes something that powers it and creates the durable bonds that we at Max find every day um, to, to sort of create stickiness. And then music becomes more widely distributed. And most importantly, you know, we finally move away from an era of, of modeling in music calculations and royalties to measuring where we know exactly, because we do, we know exactly where every song is being used and when and how much. And those artists get paid potentially in some cryptocurrency or fractional payment or whatever, then I think we got something because then new industries can start emerging and using music in ways that we can't even contemplate. And right now, because of what we just, what we talked about earlier, they, those startups and investors or whatever just don't have the appetite for it because it's too complex and expensive and too risky from a, from a litigation standpoint to, to try to build new and unusual products that don't conform to the, the sort of traditional standards. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I can think of times myself where I wanted to use music, you know, for a podcast intro, outro, and you got to find royalty free or pay someone. And there's not great libraries of of music that you can license easily to do it. So there's like, it seems like there's a big disconnect between so much great music that's out there and the ability to use it on a, you know, small or individual scale or a short term scale. Well, well, that's right. And, And so what happens is, so you've got some cool idea for a product and, and, you get excited about it and maybe you even do some lightweight test and you've got product market fit and then you go to get money, right? So you go to the VC community and the VC community goes, yeah, that's billions of dollars that we put into SoundCloud doesn't seem to work out all that well. Yeah, no. And so, I mean, you know, it's it's a challenging endeavor right now. It, it, It costs a lot to get a data set of music. Like if you just say, I want to put music in, 
you know, it costs a lot to get there and you've got risk. And then, and then the money outside money is, is not unreasonably skeptical, right? So this creates sort of this perfect storm of, uh, you know, failure of innovation. Um, and that's exactly as the, as the current rights holders want it. It's exactly what they want. And that's why they're, they're, their sort of their sort of knee jerk reaction is sort of cease and desist first, ask questions later to any type of new technology. Hmm. Well, very good. So, how can um, brands, companies, people find out more about Max and start interacting with you guys and make music together? Bad joke. Yes, yeah, uh, I mean the website, obviously, and and uh, anybody that's listening to this podcast, you know, I'm easily findable uh, online. And if you hear, if you're a musician and you know something about crypto and Bitcoin and blockchain and stuff find me, let me know you heard it here. And, and I want to talk to you and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can to sort of make, uh, make sure that your, your music is at least uh, integrated as effectively as possible into our. Well, that's great. Well, George, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, uh, it's great to see this. I don't want to call it a use case of blockchain, but, uh, music, even contemplating using it, it's, uh, it's rare. So it's good to hear from you. So thank you so much. Yeah, we can. I mean, I'm delighted. and I appreciate you taking the time to profile Music Audience Exchange. It's, it's a passion. It's a great business. Again, the team and Nathan are just doing Herculean efforts and it's working. Um, there's a lot of other elements in the, in the sort of blockchain music space that I can talk about, too. But I'm delighted to talk about uh, Music Audience Exchange here. So thank you very much. The Bitcoin, Ethereum and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas. February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.